You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. A warning, this episode includes references to violence and suicide. Please take care when listening. And if you're struggling, call Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. I'm a small-town gal. If you've listened to our season called Ghost Towning, you probably heard a lot about my childhood in Walden, a tiny town in northern Colorado. Back then, before cable, we only had three TV channels. So all the kids in town spent a lot of time outdoors. Digging snow forts, riding our bikes all the way up to the rodeo grounds, skipping double dutch in the middle of the street. I felt safe. And I knew that if something bad happened, like the time that I almost got hit by a car, that my neighbors would bring me in the house, wrap me in a big hug, and call my parents to come get me. Over the years, I lived in some good-sized urban places. But when the time came to raise my own family, I wanted to give them some of what I grew up with, that small-town feel. So we moved to Laramie, Wyoming, a college town nestled between two mountain ranges. It feels like a big, small town. Safe for them to bike everywhere, safe for them to learn to drive on the long, wide-open back roads. Now, my twin daughters are 18. I can't believe I'm saying that. But Laramie's been a great place to raise them. Every summer, we take backpacking trips into the mountains and canyons. They know how to hang a bear bag, build a fire. And every winter, we cross-country ski into the backcountry. A dreamy place to be a kid, right? But a few years ago... I started to see a different side to raising children in the American West. One of my daughters started to struggle with mental health issues that were making school hard. But I thought, okay, we can handle this. Wyoming has good schools, some of the best funded in the whole country. So I figured we'll just talk to the school and we'll get some help. Some of her teachers totally understood that her learning disability wasn't who she was, and they took her under their wing. But there were others in the school system who treated my daughter like she just wasn't trying hard enough. One teacher even called her lazy. I was surprised at the way so many around her blamed her or shrugged their shoulders when she started slipping. Then the pandemic came along. Her classes went virtual and she fell through the cracks even deeper. I saw her school absences skyrocket. I saw her grades and her self-esteem plummet. All the dreams that she'd had for herself growing up, they started to pop like balloons. She started seeking out even more trouble. Then, when her senior year came along, we sat down and had a hard conversation. To both of us, it felt like our relationship with her school was broken. She decided to drop out of high school and pursue her GED. The sad thing is that my daughter's story is far from unique, and for lots of kids, it takes a much darker course. I just wanted someone to look at me and be like, let me help you, let me do something to make this better for you. No one told me that. They just told me, like, you're a bad kid, you're suspended. I feel like the justice system really let him down. 
in so many ways. So like, even if I did do good, I would still lose. The system screwed me over. They said they would help and they didn't. And they messed me up mentally more than I ever was. Like, before the system, I was never thinking about suicide. It was me and three other girls. The three other girls were white. And I'm the one that got the ticket. Once you are painted as a bad kid, that brushstroke follows you. I tell my husband, like, I, I don't know. Like, is there a risk that we take raising them here? It freaks me out, like it does. Despite seeming like the perfect place to grow up, states in the American West have some of the highest teen suicide and juvenile incarceration rates. Wyoming, where we live, is often the worst on both fronts. And you've got to wonder, how can a place that seems so idyllic for kids also be such a harsh and unforgiving place to grow up? From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. This season, we bring you Cowboy Up, a three-part look at how we raise children in the American West. We're going to focus especially on Wyoming, since the statistics here are so glaring. What exactly is Wyoming's approach to its most struggling kids? And why are so many of them, like my own daughter, falling through the cracks? Reporter Tennessee Watson has spent years covering education and child well-being in Wyoming and has thought a lot about how to help kids succeed and what happens when they don't. So I'm going to hand it over to Tennessee. When I rolled into Laramie on December 21st, 2016, to start my job at Wyoming Public Radio, a blizzard had taken the power out. High winds on the interstate were blowing tractor-trailer trucks over, and the snowdrifts were taller than me, and I'm tall. I was quickly reassured that I'd be fine, because everyone looks out for each other here. I mean, you should probably keep a sleeping bag and snacks and water in your car in case you slide off the road and get stranded, but eventually, someone will come along and help you out. I went into my new job as an education reporter, curious what these close-knit communities, where everyone looks out for each other, would be like for young people. I'd long been fascinated with how systems help or hurt kids. Before moving to Wyoming, I spent over 10 years teaching journalism and media production to teens in big East Coast cities. In the last class I taught, at a place called the Educational Video Center, the students made a documentary film about mental health in New York City schools. The students were inspired to tackle this subject because what one of their classmates had been through. I'm Kareem Lee Kandazi, and I'm 16 years old. During ninth and 10th grade, I was going through a lot. At the beginning of ninth grade, my house burned down. The relationship with my mom and stepdad started to burn down, too. I moved back in with my father for the first time since my parents split. At school, I was having trouble focusing. I started cutting class and getting myself in trouble. Acting indifferent, cutting class, trouble focusing, those can all be signs that kids are struggling mentally and emotionally. But over and over again, I heard stories of teachers telling troubled kids to just get it together. It would just be like, you know you're better than this, come on. Like, rather than trying to, like, actually, like, get in, like, to what the problem is. And I understand why they do that based on their schedule or whatever, but I don't, that's not help, in my opinion, for somebody's problem. They didn't blame their teachers, knowing they were doing their best within a system that stripped away opportunities for personal connection and empathy. But being asked to muscle through their feelings made learning even harder. Some gave up on school. Some got high to numb feeling like a failure. Some attempted suicide. And they felt like maybe things wouldn't get so bad for kids if adults talked to them a little differently. 
I think something I've been helpful to hear, like, is are, are you feeling okay from, like, people, like, teachers in school who knew I wasn't, like, like, actually feeling okay, who actually be like, like, yo, come on, come on, like, it will just be a bunch of, come on, come on, rather than, is everything okay? Like, it would just be like, you know you're better than this, come on. The students who made that video were from all over New York City, from all different schools, but they were all witnessing the same thing. Kids were being funneled into the juvenile justice system for things like skipping school and doing drugs, when what they needed was support. Support they knew their teachers alone shouldn't be expected to provide. They called for more school-based mental health professionals, more opportunities for mentoring, more positive ways to express their feelings. You know, stuff that requires funding and logistics. But at the core, what my students wanted was empathy. They taught me there's a powerful difference between asking a kid, hey, what's your problem? And are you okay? I left teaching to become an education reporter to understand what we could be doing better for kids, not just in schools, but as communities which is what brought me to Wyoming. It made sense to me that kids would fall through the cracks in New York. There are just so many people. I thought Wyoming, with its can-do, neighborly spirit, might be different. But it turns out kids really aren't better taken care of here. Rather than troubled kids getting help, they're incarcerated. Or worse, they take their own lives at rates well above the national average. And I took those two stats to mean that Wyoming's small communities were struggling to keep kids out of trouble. And I wanted to know why. How did we end up like this? The story of traumatized kids not being helped goes back to Wyoming's founding, in more ways than one. But I was shocked to learn that the first state-sanctioned execution was of a child, an infamous boy murderer named Kansas Charlie. His story starts with a childhood of mistreatment and ends in violence. Hi, are you Tennessee? Yes. Nice to meet you. I'm Susie. Nice to meet you, too. Susie Taylor is an archivist at the Wyoming State Archives. And last July, we sat down to sort through what's left of Kansas Charlie. We've got a whole folder here of copies that relate to to Charlie Miller. Charlie, yeah. Yeah. Kansas Charlie was actually Charles Miller, a poor immigrant orphan from New York City. We've got prison calendars that show him. He was 5'4", and in this case, he was 17. They describe him as having light hair, light hair, blue eyes, and a light complexion. Hmm. So he must have been very fair. Like most people, Susie wasn't familiar with Charlie's story. And there was something suspenseful about dusting off this piece of forgotten Wyoming history together. Okay, so he is, cause of commitment is murder. October, time of commitment is October 19th of 1890. The archive has a lot on what happened to Charlie after his arrest. But I learned most of what I'm about to tell you from a book by Joan Jacobs Broomberg called Kansas Charlie. And the story of how Charles Miller became the infamous Kansas Charlie, starts in Midtown Manhattan, where he was born on November 20th, 1874. The building he grew up in was packed with German immigrants like Charlie's family, as well as Irish immigrants, all newly arrived in the hopes of a better life. But a better life didn't happen for Charlie. When he was just five years old, his mother died. His dad started drinking. And within a year of his mom's death, Charlie's dad died by suicide. And he and his three siblings were placed at an orphanage. His oldest sister was the first to be adopted, and then his two brothers. But Charlie struggled to find a family that wanted him because he was a chronic bedwetter. Now we know bedwetting is a symptom of trauma, but back then, doctors thought it might be an anatomical problem. So the orphanage 
attempted to cure the bedwetting by circumcising Charlie when he was 12 years old. A year later, Charlie was sent on an orphan train to Minnesota. You know how the orphan trains work? That's Martin Woodside. He studies the cultural history of childhood in the 20th century and wrote a book called Frontiers of Boyhood about boys growing up out west. Specifically, a frontier shaped the boy into the right kind of man. The first orphan train left New York bound for Michigan in 1854. These trains took poor, usually Catholic immigrant kids away from their supposedly unfit families in the big, dirty city and shipped them out west to live. The idea, according to Protestant charities, was that the western frontier turned lazy boys into hardworking, virtuous, and independent men. And the idea was that the experience of leaving the sort of corrupt uh, city and going to the country would restore them and the hard work of working on a farm and living that sort of agrarian, idealized life would restore them and teach them hard work. As far as these charities were concerned, the root of these kids' problems was their poor immigrant and Catholic families. So sending them out of the city to live in nice Protestant homes was supposed to be helpful. Um, And so you'd get these families adopting them out west, but a lot of the time uh, you'd get mixed results. So some families would really want a child and they'd adopt a child. A lot of them just wanted labor. Charles Miller boarded an orphan train in 1887, headed for rural Minnesota, along with 18 other boys and girls. Charlie was taken home by a couple with a 160-acre farm. The farmers were in their early 50s and their six children were all grown, so adopting Charlie was a way to get some more help on the farm. Well, so what happens with somebody like Kansas Charlie is he's sent out there and, you know, the experience goes sour. Having arrived in March, he was immediately thrown into preparing fields for spring planting. He wasn't given much time to attend school, and when the couple discovered Charlie wet the bed, they whipped him. He tried to run away several times, but the orphan train charity never came to rescue him. Abandoning his plans to adopt Charlie, the farmer dropped the boy back off at the train depot where he found him without food, money, or a train ticket. Charlie, at 13 years old, was now totally on his own and did what he needed to do to survive. He started riding freight trains around the West, picking up work where he could. Live in the tramp life, Charlie was free from adults' expectations and critique. He felt more like a man than a kid who still wets the bed. And it was at this moment, as he's setting out on his own, that he names himself Kansas Charlie, inspired by the names of characters in the Western dime novels he read. And then he ends up on his own, just sort of riding the rails. And he loves dime novels. And dime novels have these, you know, sort of figures who do what they want. And no one tells them what to do. And a lot of them were really young. So this unadoptable orphan, without a family to guide him, gets the idea from dime novels that it's okay to do what you got to do to take care of yourself. He wanted to be tough, independent, a cowboy. And it wasn't just dime novels pushing the idea that young men could and should head west. In 1889, Teddy Roosevelt published his four-volume history of American expansion called The Winning of the West. It celebrated the rugged pioneers and brave cowboys, not as perpetrators of genocide, but as valiant nation builders. No matter the source, it's safe to assume Charlie saw the West as a place to reinvent himself as tough. But new traumas lay ahead. In a boxcar in Omaha, Charlie was gang-raped by a group of hobos. After that, he got a gun for protection. 
Then, in late September 1890, Charlie decides he'll go to Wyoming to find a job on a ranch. He was riding a boxcar headed from Sydney, Nebraska, to Cheyenne, Wyoming. And around the town of Kimball, Nebraska, he ended up in the same car as two other kids, ages 18 and 20. And at some point on that ride, he killed them with the gun. Any argument that the murder was motivated by fear was tainted by the fact that Charlie robbed the dead boys before he fled the scene. Upon arriving in Cheyenne, he got work for a few days with some sheep herders, but that didn't last long. By October 16, 1890, he turned himself in to the authorities. And pretty much as soon as Charlie got booked into the Laramie County Jail, his case got a ton of attention. It's all over the the newspapers. Okay. You know, it and it made national news. You know, it was it was a big deal at the time. We're talking newspapers from New York to San Francisco to Chicago, all plastered with Charlie's name. Oh, here's all sorts of news articles about him. You know, this one's practically an entire column. And the big question of the day. Is Kansas Charlie a cold-blooded murderer or a kid, subjected to trauma after trauma after trauma, who made a terrible mistake? Cheyenne Daily Leader, there's probably never been confined... Probably never been confined in the Laramie County Jail, a more thorough criminal than Charlie Miller, the youth double murderer upon whom some sympathy has been heretofore wasted. And the interesting thing is that Charlie had public opinion extremely split, This one local paper is like, this kid is a cold-blooded murderer. He is utterly lacking in moral responsibility. Remorse has never visited him for the murder of his innocent and defenseless companions near Hillsdale. They had money, and he wanted it. He therefore killed them in cold blood and with little compunction, as a man would crush a fly which pestered him. Letters were also flooding in, taking a totally different stance. So a lot of these are probably copies from the petition for pardon file, Um, you know, where a lot of people are writing in, in his defense. Basically, he's a kid who's experienced tremendous hardship in his short life, and that he should be spared. Because, you know, up until he was hung, the governor still had the power to um, commute his sentence or to pardon him completely. Letters to the governor came in from across the country. I read in the St. Louis paper the sentence of Charlie Miller and have been greatly troubled over the matter ever since. And my object in writing to you is to ask you to reprieve him or let the case be taken into the Supreme Court. Oh, don't you think he's too young to have such a dreadful fate? I know the crime was awful. But this poor boy was wholly blind to the crime and his own poor soul's condition. In the end, though, the petitions for pardon weren't enough. And time of discharge, April 22nd of 1892, hanged. At age 17, Charles Miller was executed by the state of Wyoming in a courtyard off the courthouse to an audience of roughly 60 people. They were mostly law enforcement from surrounding jurisdictions there to see the state's first legal execution. In the streets, more than a thousand people congregated, some climbing lampposts to get a peek. Two days later, he was buried in a Cheyenne cemetery designated for indigent poor. And word of Wyoming's decision to kill Charlie made the news across the country, from Denver to New York to San Francisco. Government-sanctioned violence wasn't new to the region. There'd been a lot of it in territorial Wyoming, leading to the formation of the state on stolen indigenous land. But Charlie's was the first trial in the newly formed state to result in a death sentence. And I can't help but feel like it's symbolic. 
that the first person to be executed by the state was a teenager. A teenager who'd been sent out west to improve his life. And that he was executed despite his traumatic past. And despite people all over the country writing in to raise alarm about a kid who was so young, so clearly in need of help, being put to death. Martin Woodside says part of Charlie's sentencing comes down to how the country was thinking about kids at the time. If you go back to the first case of child abuse um, in New York City, which is also towards the turn of the century, I think it gets reported to the ASPCA. That's the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Because there's no, there's no, there's no society for abuse to children to deal with it, right? Back then, there wasn't a lot in place to protect kids. The United States didn't have child labor laws yet, and lots and lots of kids worked in mines and mills and in farm fields until a guy named G. Stanley Hall came around. G. Stanley Hall is a famous um, psychologist at that time, publishes a two-volume book called Adolescence. Hall published his book Adolescence in 1904, 13 years after Kansas Charlie was executed. And Hall was the first to frame the time between puberty and the mid-20s as a distinct life stage. Teenagers, as an idea, were born. No age is so responsive to all the best and the wisest adult endeavor. In no psychic soil, too, does seed, bad as well as good, strike such deep root, grow so rankly, or bear fruit so quickly or so surely. To love and feel for and with the young can alone make the teacher love his calling and respect it as supreme that it may directly and indirectly help the young to exploit aright all the possibilities of the years from 14 to 24. Basically, adolescents are not adults. They need some extra help and a lot of understanding. This belief, however, was not applied the same way to all kids. Some children are thought of as innocent and some are not, right? I mean, Robin Bernstein wrote a book called Racial Innocence, which argues strongly that, like, innocence was a category for white children, but not for black children. And not for Native American kids, who throughout the 19th and 20th centuries were removed from their families and sent involuntarily to boarding schools, where they were forbidden to speak their own languages or to celebrate their own cultures. When Kansas Charlie was sentenced to death, adolescence wasn't even really a thing. So it's sad, but it makes a lot of sense what happened to Charlie in 1892. Despite the letters and petitions that flooded into the governor's office, pleading for Charlie's sentence to be reduced to life in prison, the belief that he should have known better won out. His poor judgment as a teenager was seen as an inherent quality he'd carry into adulthood. He was beyond rehabilitation and deserved to die. It's been over a century since Kansas Charlie was orphaned by suicide, then taken from his home city shipped to strangers out west, and abused. Over a century since he killed two boys in a boxcar, and since he died by hanging at age 17. You'd think that in all that time, Wyoming would have probably learned with the rest of the country about how teenagers are not adults. You'd think we would have looked hard at why Charlie did what he did and how we could have helped him. But have we? I mean, it, 2021 in Wyoming for juvenile justice is 1892. Um, but yeah, we're, we're still right where we started in my mind. Lauren McLean is a law professor at the University of Wyoming, where she also runs a legal clinic that defends people who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford a lawyer. Many of her clients have stories reminiscent of what Charlie Miller endured as a kid. I think uh, trauma can come in all sorts of forms in every single one of these guys that I've represented. You know, every single one of them has some form of trauma, um, physical, mental, or otherwise. So I think trauma is a leading reason of why um, people do what they do. And for Lauren, one person comes immediately to mind when she thinks about the legacy of Kansas Charlie and Wyoming's prevailing attitude towards trauma and juvenile offenders, a convicted murderer named Donald Davis. More when we come back. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. 
take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. When I think about Kansas Charlie, a poor immigrant kid with a messed up life who committed a terrible act of violence and was hanged for it, I see it in sepia tones. It's a story of mythology, one that feels plucked from a Western movie or a history book. But as far as how untreated trauma can lead to violence, it feels like the legacy of Kansas Charlie is still alive and well today, in the stories of guys like Donald Davis. Thank you for calling the Wyoming State Penitentiary in Rollins, Wyoming. If you know your... Please enter the seven digits now. I do interviews over the phone all the time. But I have to admit that calling Donald Davis at the Wyoming State Penitentiary made me feel really nervous. He's been incarcerated for 40 years because he murdered someone. That's just a scary idea. I remind myself I'm calling to get to know him. Not as a murderer, but as a human being. Hey, so yeah, my name's Tennessee. Nice to meet you. Um, so I was just gonna sort of start with some basic questions. I, I actually don't know that much about your life or who you are. So, um, can you tell me like where you're, where you're from, where you grew up? Michigan for the first 14 years of my life. And then I went to Arizona for three years and then back to Michigan shortly. And then to Wyoming. I read in court documents that when Donald was still a baby, his father, who was only 19 years old, drowned. By the time he was two, Donald's mom remarried a man who struggled with substance use. I had a lot of, a lot of shit, you know, that was, you know, bad at the same time, you know. His stepdad would get drunk and verbally and physically abuse Donald. Violence was a constant presence during Donald's childhood. And that made school hard. What was going to school like for you? Torture. Uh... Just having to sit there at the desk, you know, having to sit there, I, you know, I, I couldn't do it. You know, in my head, I couldn't do it. So, I mean, I went other places in my head and wasn't paying attention to what I was supposed to be paying attention to because I couldn't, you know. I know from being a teacher that trauma is a huge factor in how kids develop physically, emotionally, and intellectually. And that continual exposure to violence or threats of violence can trap kids' brains in a state of fight, flight, or freeze. So when I hear that Donald couldn't sit still, that he didn't trust people, that he'd have outbursts and run around his classroom, I see that as anxiety and hypervigilance resulting from trauma. That kind of behavior can be disruptive for other students and frustrating for teachers. Or worse, I've had a student give me a black eye. But ideally, a kid with those symptoms would have a full-time aide to help him get through the school day. But Donald says instead of support, he was punished. That, that was the only response to it, you know. I've never, never, nobody ever sat me down and asked me about it. You know, and I even had a few of the, uh, oh, I don't know what they called them, caseworkers or psychologists or whatever the hell they were, you know, when I was younger, I talked to me and I don't remember ever any of them ever asking me, you know, what, what the real problem was or, you know, why I couldn't sit still or I, nobody ever asked me about that. The idea that trauma could be driving his disruptive behavior wasn't really a thing yet. Now we've got ACEs or the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study to prove just how devastating childhood trauma can be. The study came out in the late 90s, and today it's still gaining traction. So no wonder Donald's trauma went untreated in the 1970s. He internalized the abuse at home and the punishment at school and started to believe he was just a bad kid. And, I, and I, when I say my self-esteem was low, it wasn't low, it was non-existent. What kind of decisions were you making as somebody without any self-esteem? Well, you know, I think it was just pretty much, you know, on the fly. It wasn't like I thought about anything. I, I didn't think anything through. I just did it, you know. There was no thought process involved. 
which is probably probably the worst thing of it, you know, because I didn't think anything through. He was already feeling lost when Donald's family moved from Michigan to Arizona for work. That's where he started to get into trouble for nonviolent offenses, like petty theft, resisting arrest, and stealing a car. And that lands him in juvie in Arizona. It was a joke. You look them up and you'll see they were, they, they've got caught in their bullshit, you know. And yeah, Donald's right. Arizona has come under fire several times for their mistreatment of juvenile offenders. In fact, thanks to Arizona, the U.S. Supreme Court established that kids have a right to due process, just like anyone else. In 1964, Gerald Galt, who was just 15 years old, was sent to a state juvenile facility for up to six years after being accused of making an obscene phone call to a neighbor. In their fight to get their son released, the Galts had to appeal all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. This was the first time that the Supreme Court established that children prosecuted for delinquency should have the same rights as adults in criminal court, things like the right to an attorney and the right to a full hearing on the merits of the case. The state continued to face lawsuits for the poor conditions in its youth prisons until 2004, when the U.S. Department of Justice sued the Arizona Department of Juvenile Corrections. That's when Arizona started to make a concerted effort to reform juvenile justice. Now, Arizona's juvenile incarceration rate is well below Wyoming's. But Donald says when he was in Arizona over 40 years ago, the conditions were bad and the youth prison system fell short on its duty to educate kids in its custody. Uh, all, the, all the school records I had there mysteriously disappeared. That put Donald back two years in school. When his family moved back to Michigan, Donald decided to drop out. Yeah, it was just like, you know what? Screw it. I'm, just, I'm done. I'm 17. I can quit whenever I want. You know, I just didn't really have a good reason not to. But was there anybody in your life that was at the time sort of begging you to, to stick with school? Or when you made that decision, were people like, okay? Yeah, they were just, okay, whatever. Yeah, because my mom and dad both quit school. You know, they never finished. So that, it, was, yeah, it wasn't even a thing. So he just walked away from school at 17, a decision he regrets now. And not long after, his stepdad threw him out of the house. So I had to go somewhere. He'd spent time in Wyoming before when his parents were there looking for work. So he stuck out his thumb and headed back to the cowboy state. I wondered if it was the myth of the West as a place where you can reinvent yourself that drew Donald. He says it wasn't that deep. There was really no thought process in me coming back. I just, you know, I woke up one morning and said, well, hell, I'm going to Wyoming. And I did. You know, I mean, there was really no thought process in it. You know, I, I, I look back thinking I wish that there had been because I probably wouldn't have came, you know. In Wyoming, Donald met a 19-year-old named Robert Cotton, According to court documents, on a September day in 1982, Robert and Donald were hanging out, drinking a combination of beer, liquor, and fortified wine, and smoking pot. The two of them went for a drive to get more booze, and while they were out, they picked up a hitchhiker, who they decided to rob for cash and drugs. The hitchhiker was an 18-year-old kid making his way from Montana to Denver. Robert and Donald had planned to let the hitchhiker go after robbing him, but somehow that didn't happen. I know from court records that Donald slit the hitchhiker's throat, but he didn't ask him why. Honestly, I didn't want to ask Donald to relive that moment, nor did I want the details of something so violent living in my mind. You know, I can't remember anything that I did when I was out there that I actually thought through. And I don't know if that explains anything, but I mean, that's just the way it feels, you know. Donald's self-esteem was so low that nothing mattered to him anymore. And as a result, someone died. I think about the young hitchhiker and those who loved him. I think about the fear that rippled across the community. I don't want to lose sight of that. But isn't Donald a victim too? 
I mean, the violence he committed is inextricably linked to the harm he suffered as a kid. So what happens to that part of the story in a justice system concerned with individual culpability? The cultural conversation about how to treat kids who cause harm has really changed over the last 40 years. And you can see that in Donald's case. A couple days after the murder, Donald was arrested. The police investigate, and the prosecutor ends up offering Donald a plea deal. The, the DA pretty much told me, you take this deal or I'm going to kill you. You know, there, it's just that simple. You're dead. Instead of the death penalty, the prosecutor offered Donald a life sentence without parole for murder, plus 20 to 50 additional years for aggravated robbery. And Donald, who had a public defender, didn't really get that he could push for his right to a jury trial. You know, and if I had been maybe a little older, I would have thought that through a little better. He was also really worried that if he got the death penalty, the heartbreak would just crush his mom. She would be dead before I before they executed me. So Donald took the prosecutor's deal, pled guilty, and went to prison indefinitely. He was only 18, and in his words, was pretty messed up. Lacking self-esteem, not caring about himself or others. But he started to open up as he got older, taking classes, journaling on a daily basis, and starting to reflect on the harm he'd done. I think the biggest thing, you know, is to compared from now and then, you know, I think a lot of the change was, you know, just growing up. You know, not just growing up physically, but mentally, you know. He spent 30 years in prison thinking he'd be there till the day he died. Until 2012, when the U.S. Supreme Court decided Miller v. Alabama. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States. And here's where Donald's story and the story of how Wyoming treats juvenile offenders starts to diverge from the tragic fate of Kansas Charlie. Sort of. So Miller v. Alabama was part of a series of U.S. Supreme Court cases between the years of 2004 and 2016 that basically did away with harsh punishments like the death penalty and mandatory life without parole for offenders under 18. These cases are like the hard science echoes of the book G. Stanley Hall published back in 1904 about how adolescents are just really, truly different from adults. And so it was really, you know, it was science that finally caught the court by its tail. Ask any parent of a teenager, and they'll tell you that the adolescent brain is very much a work in progress. But now we have the neuroscience and psychology to prove it. So the court found that because young people's brains aren't fully mature, they're less culpable, and therefore shouldn't be punished so severely. Until these cases came out, you could execute someone for what they did as a child. But these cases say, because young brains aren't fully developed, at 12 or 15 or even 20, that's not fair. Most science would say by 30, the prefrontal cortex is fully developed and you are who you are, so to speak. Um, And we just don't have that same picture up front with juveniles. And so to sentence them to death without allowing them to become who they uh, may grow and develop to be um, is just inhumane. So the person sentenced at 17 is automatically going to be very different by the time they're 30. It's not till the prefrontal cortex fully develops, which can happen for some people at 24 and others at 30, that we get better at reasoning, anticipating consequences, planning, impulse control. That science also helped the court see that because the harm caused by juvenile offenders is a product of immaturity, that they're likely to be reformed as they grow up. These Supreme Court cases opened a door for Donald. Remember, he was sentenced to life without parole, but according to Miller v. Alabama, that's unconstitutional. So Donald had the right to appeal for parole. But the reality was going to be more difficult. I mean, I look at uh, Donald Davis's first hearing, Miller hearing back in 2016, and, um, you know, I think it was a miseducation of the court. Lauren wasn't sure if Wyoming's justice system wasn't up on the science 
or was reluctant to accept it. But it was hard to get the court to see Donald as a kid who made a mistake. You know, I often will hear, but he was just days away from his 18th birthday, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, so all of a sudden, right, that brain just snaps into completion at age 18. So even though neuroscience debunked the idea that at 18 we magically mature, Lauren says the Johnson County District Court wanted to see it that way. You know, that's frustrating. So it's this old kind of, it's almost like rhetoric. It's almost like maybe they even, they know that's not true, but it's this like status quo sort of way of understanding or or way of talking about things that just is heavy here. Lauren had to go back and forth with appeals because the court had a hard time accepting that Miller applied to Donald. They saw him as an adult and not a juvenile. And the court was overly focused on the heinousness of the crime. But what the U.S. Supreme Court said is that there are five factors that need to be considered. Under Miller, in determining whether or not a life without the possibility of parole sentence um, is appropriate for juvenile. And one of the factors is the crime. But then the court is supposed to move on to these four other factors that really focus on the child's background. Trauma, if it exists, uh, upbringing, mental health potential addictions, and then ultimately you get to the point where you're assessing reformation and whether that uh, person has the capacity to be reformed or rehabilitated. But the court in Wyoming wasn't actually following what Miller v. Alabama told them to do. So Donald kept appealing until finally the Wyoming Supreme Court told the lower court, nope, Donald has the right to a Miller hearing where they consider all these factors. The result of that when they really looked at all the factors, is that Donald's no longer the 17-year-old who made a terrible mistake. He's sorry. He's grown up, and he should be eligible for parole. I'm ready to get out of here. I, you know, my mom's getting older. You know, I don't think she's going to be around much longer. You know, I'd like to get out and don't do a little bit, of, you know, a little bit with her before she goes. You know, uh, you know, get something going on out there, you know, because this is just a dead end nothing, you know, where I've been for oh, almost 40 years now. So he'll get a second chance at life, thanks in part to science and to the perseverance of Lauren and her law students. They're hopeful that Donald's case will set legal precedents so that moving forward, Wyoming's courts will have to consider brain development and trauma when sentencing juvenile offenders. But that only changes what happens once kids get in trouble. But what if Donald had never committed murder? What did Donald need that he didn't get? I mean, I've talked to a fair amount of teenagers in Wyoming who are getting in trouble, and um, my sense is that they're really feeling the way that you were feeling. Um, Worthless, really low self-esteem, you know, people tell me I'm a bad kid and they don't see me any other way, so I'm just going to be bad. And I'm curious, like, you know, what would you tell those kids? You know, the biggest thing I could tell them is, hey, don't listen to them dumbasses. Listen to yourself. Run it in your, think, think. Number one, think and figure it out for yourself. Don't listen to these people that are just going to be, that are all negative. Because if they're all negative, there's something wrong with them. I've been thinking a lot about Donald telling kids to think for themselves when that was so impossible for him. He heard over and over again that he was a bad kid. That negativity came from home, school, the juvenile justice system, and he wasn't able to tune it out and muscle through. What if he'd found an adult who believed in him, who made him feel less alone? You know, now... Logistically, that makes a lot of sense. I'd never had that. So, I, you know, I never had anybody, nobody. And you nobody wouldn't have known where to find it either. No. That doesn't excuse Donald's actions, but it might help us keep kids from heading down a similar path of destruction. Learning about ACEs or the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey helped me understand how high levels of stress during childhood can harm our nervous systems and our immune systems, and even alter the structure of our DNA. It impacts our brains and decision-making. It's been linked to poor health outcomes for adults. ACEs found the impact of childhood trauma to be so devastating that it's become a top priority for the Centers for Disease Control. But those researchers have also found that permanent harm is preventable. 
And one of the CDC's top recommendations is to connect kids to caring adults and activities that provide a sense of belonging. It's not rocket science. We're talking about making sure kids have easy access to things like after-school programs and mentors in their communities. Lauren McLean says in Washington, where she lived before, the juvenile justice system was starting to shift resources away from punitive measures and towards community programs. But in Wyoming... We just don't have the same level of programming. Some of that has to do with Wyoming's economic woes and across-the-board budget cuts. But Lauren says it's also cultural. It's pull yourself by, up by your own bootstrap here in Wyoming. I mean, I think Wyoming is still in a place where we really expect... Um, personal responsibility, regardless of where you come from and your background. Lauren's not the only person I've heard this from. Wyoming's bootstraps mentality plays a huge role in how we deal with troubled kids. And maybe even whether those kids go on to cause harm to others or more often themselves. But that rugged individualism is at odds with something else that seems so core to Wyoming's identity, our resiliency as a community. That idea that if you slide off the road in a snowstorm, you can count on the kindness of a stranger to help you out. I'll be more than happy to pull over and help you fix your flat tire. I'm more than happy to do that. But I really don't want to fix your kid. That's kind of the attitude. But why do we even think about my kid versus your kid? Why isn't it our kids? That's next time on The Modern West. That was Tennessee Watson. This episode is dedicated in memory of Kareem Kanazi, one of the students Tennessee worked with in New York City. I'm Melody Edwards. We'd love to hear about your experience as a teenager. Is there anything you wish the school system would have done differently for you? Make a short voice memo of your memories on your phone and send them to us at themodernwestpod at gmail.com. We might include them in a future episode. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Our editorial team is Cooper McKim, Noah Greenspan, Charles Fournier, and Sarah Ann Leverett. Our history reenactors are Noelia Burkus and Brick Burkus with Relative Theatrics and Sheldon Williams and Ethan Williams. Our illustrator is Ada Udenlar. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. This season was funded with support from the Wyoming Community Foundation. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.